HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with, like, paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did a student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today I have with me Dara Goldstein. Dara is a uh, cookbook author and a Russian scholar. And in her travels to the Russian North, this award-winning cookbook author, yes, I forgot to mention award-winning cookbook author, um, Dara Goldstein, discovered the extraordinary in the ordinary In her search to find the heart of Russian flavors, she found that many of the old foods seemed new again in the context of modern cuisine. The result of all this research is her newest book, Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. Dara has been long enamored with and immersed in Russian culture and cuisine and pursued it in her studies and professional career. She is the Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russian Emerita at Williams College and founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture, which, by the way, was named a 2012 Publication of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. And she has published widely on literature, culture, and art and served as editor-in-chief of the James Beard-nominated Oxford companion to Sugar and Sweets. You've been here for all these things. I'm trying to where's something different? <laughs> and you can hear all of these on, on my past shows if you search it out a little bit. And she's the author of oh, how many is it now, Dara? I'm eight, not counting. Seven, eight, I can't well, and, count. Re, and, and revisions and you know, new yeah. editions. Uh, many cookbooks, let's put it that way. Both Russian and others, including the multi-award winning book for which she was did an interview with me as well, Fire and Ice. Classic Nordic Cooking. Dara is series editor of California Studies in Food and Culture for the University of California Press 
And she holds a PhD from Stanford University, during which she spent a good deal of her time in Russia. Welcome once again, Dara. I forgot to also mention that you currently serve on the Kitchen Cabinet of Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, which is a, a, a great thing, and on the advisory board for the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Um, and I just welcome you again to the show because I, I know when I'm going to have you on the show, it's kind of like a breather for me. <laughs> oh, well, for me, it's just always a delight. Well, you, I mean, you know, I just wind you up and let you talk. <laughs> and your, your information is always so incredible. But with this, and at first, I, as I just mentioned to you before the show, I, I said, hmm, okay, another Russian cookbook, another take on it. And you managed to make this so much more than a cookbook, however. You have, in a sense written the history of food in the Soviet era and and then went beyond. And your reminiscences of the people are, are really, truly poetic. And you, I guess the, you know, the, the photographs in the book and the stories you tell, you know, are, are poetic and they, they evoke not too much of a romanticized vision, but really a description of the people. They, they set a place of time and um, a, sense of, a sense of place. And, and it's really, I think it's actually terrific. Um, they, help, they helped me get an understanding. The poetry um, helped me, not, it's not poetry perhaps, it's your poetic style yeah. of writing, um, helped me get a sense and understand where you were going with this food. And you went way out there. Uh, you visited the land, yeah, the, the land beyond the North Wind, yes. literally. Um, what, and that is the title of the book, Beyond the North Wind. Okay, so what is the whole, what is the whole lore behind this? What is the myth of the, of beyond the North Wind, the land beyond the North Wind? <clears throat> First of all, Linda, thank you for that beautiful introduction. My and I'm pleasure. glad the book made you feel that way because of all my books, this one's probably closest to my heart. I've been thinking about Russia for so long. So I also thought, well, what else is there to say about Russia and Russian food? And I was noodling around, as I tend to do. And I found that uh, in ancient Greece, there was the idea of a utopia called Hyperborea, which means beyond the north wind. And Pliny the Elder and Herodotus and some others refer to it in their writings. And they sort of said how to get there, you have to cross the Carpathian Mountains and you have to cross this river and then you have to go someplace else. And Apollo apparently went there for his winters because it was a place where the sun always shone and there were these beautiful blonde people, tall and blonde there. And it was utopian, people lived in harmony. And in the uh, Soviet period, there were some geographers who decided to try and uh, track this route to beyond the North Wind and determined that it was the Kola Peninsula, hmm. which is in the far northwest of Russia. It comes down, if you can picture where the city of Murmansk is, right on the border with Norway. I can't really, but okay. I'll look at a map. and <laughs> Well, it's on the Barents Sea, uh -huh. so it's the, the tip of the earth, and it comes down in this uh, long peninsula. And that is apparently where the utopia was. And if you look at 
um, meteorological data, you find that in the past, it actually was much more temperate than it is today. And so it's possible, and the sun shines 24 hours a day in the summer. Right. So it's possible that there was this sort of utopian place. And I decided, when I looked at the map, it was a part of Russia I hadn't been to but had long wanted to go. And it hadn't had incursions from the Mongols. It hadn't had a lot of Western influence. And I thought, there I might find the true heart of Russian cooking. And that's really what you were after. You were after the real heart of Russian I wanted flavors, to get to right. elemental flavors. Uh-huh. So uh, in the 19th century, and uh, starting with Peter the Great, there was a lot of French influence. Now there's a lot of Western influence. Sure. And uh, during the Soviet period, there's a lot of influence from all the different republics. And that's Russian cuisine writ large, and it's very rich. But I want to try and get to something narrower, but somehow deeper. Mm-hmm. Interesting, uh, interesting, too, that because it even though food is hard to come by because of the weather, even though you say that's a little more temperate, but the long winters, uh, it doesn't seem that it experienced quite the same, the deprivation that existed, of course, in the cities that were, you know, that were so influenced by wars and and the Soviet Republic. Um, It is a harsh place. And it's very austere. But the thing that struck me is uh, the wealth of food that people could coax from the land and also from the sea, because the White Sea has probably the best fish I've ever tasted. Well, it's amazing. I mean, you go um, as one goes on to, to read the stories and look at the recipes. It's amazing what, you know, what they, what they dig up. In fact, one of the... Um, what I loved is you had a, a a little phrase there that somebody had said there the um, or maybe it was the monks we'll get there the sea is their garden yes yes uh, and they harvested it yeah absolutely <laughs> indeed uh, it do, you know there are some things that uh, remind me a bit of your Nordic cookbook Fire and Ice because of this harsh climate because of you know trying to coax you know, a little sprig of dill from between a couple of rocks or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, it it is it's definitely filled with a lot some different flavors, as you say. Everything old is new again, and it, and it in what's happening in our cuisine, the modern cuisine here in America today. The you know the focus on fermentation and whole grains and. It's exactly what what yes, you and they've been presented. doing that for over a thousand years. Amazing, the photography. But at least, lest I forget, the photography is by Stefan Wettinen. 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 Okay, incredible. It's he, absolutely yes, beautiful. he was my photographer for Fire and Ice. And I thought no one besides Stefan could possibly go there to this Arctic place and <laughs> capture it. He was in the equivalent of the Navy SEALs in Sweden. Oh. He's Swedish, of Finnish heritage, and he just embraced it. I can remember one night uh, in February. It's one of the first photographs in the book where you see the northern lights. The northern lights. Yeah. And we were out on the edge of the Barents Sea at midnight. And 
it was so cold and the wind was blowing and he's there in his parka for hours and hours just waiting to catch the moment. Oh, but it's just, you know, the, the, and it's not, so it's not just food photography for those of you who are wondering. This is photography of the area and it, it really is, as I said, it, it evokes a sense of place too, as well as your writing because, you know, I think I was shivering a couple of times, (laughs) (laughs) but absolutely wonderful. Um, the people who have gone out this far, a lot of the people, well, then you went further. You went out to the uh, the islands. From I the, did, to the Solovetsky Islands. Right, right. So the people who live out this way, I mean, who lives there? Right? <laughs> uh, people who love the sea, um, whose families have been there for a long time, uh, on the Solovetsky is the colloquial name for... Uh, these islands that are in the White Sea, there's a a very important monastery there. So for hundreds of years, uh, people made pilgrimage to made pilgrimage to it, and they have begun doing that again. During the Soviet years, it was turned into one of the first labor camps, and uh, it was a really grim existence. Mm. But they gardened still. And there used to be extraordinarily fatty herring that was very abundant in the sea there. And the herring run is depleted now. Oh, yeah. But I can, I can only imagine, you know. Um, you said, and the monks, you know, they, they gardened through all mm-hmm. of this. In fact, they were well known for their... Uh, their cabbages. Slovetsky apples or whatever. Yes, the cabbages that they called uh, Solovetsky apples. Solovetsky yeah. apples, yes, and they were cabbages. Um, so the people who remain there obviously are very resilient people. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you wrote in your first book on Russian cuisine was actually the name of it was Hospitality. Russian. Yes. And you talk once again about these people and how hospitable they are and that that is still the running theme is that they are there is hospitality is so important to them it's still at the core of everything and food takes on meaning when it's shared if you sit and eat by yourself it doesn't have the same deliciousness or resonance and it's meant to be given to others yeah i mean that's you think about it it's that's true period i mean anywhere but to think that in this land where you know where they it's not an overabundance of food. And then, um, you know, they have, someone walks in and they create a feast for and you, it, right? And it just, there's, in Russian folktale, there's a tablecloth, tablecloth called the magic tablecloth. And all you have to do is spread it and it is laden with food. Food magically so you appears. Have a feast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a wonderful fairy tale. I mean, I'm sure it, I mean, it's embellished in, in many stories like that. But. but one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, going to visit a woman whom I'd never met before in an apartment in Murmansk. And I felt bad because, you know, here I came and I was with the photographer with Stefan and we just sort of descended upon her and she laid this magical tablecloth and all this food appeared from out of nowhere, it seemed. She had quite a tiny apartment. 
And there were some extraordinary pickles. I really love pickles. Uh -huh. And the Russian pickles are not done with vinegar. They're lacto-fermented, and so you just layer them with salt and usually some dill and garlic. And I felt bad because I saw there was the end of a jar. And I thought this is, and it was February, and I thought uh -huh. this is the last of her carefully put up stash. But it turns out that she makes these 20-minute pickles and gave me the recipe for the book. And, and these and pickles it is in the book, yeah, right? <laughs> and they literally take 20 minutes to make. I mean, you, they taste best if you chill them for another 20. Mm -hmm. But it's not this laborious process. And they taste almost like the, the days-long yeah. fermented ones. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Um, another thing that was, we, we talked about the sea and how they, um, you know, they, they gardened the sea. They grew, you know, they harvested the sea. Um, the importance of salt. Salt was, is very important, particularly out on, on the islands that, that you went to. Uh, but wait, okay, we're going to get into the food. We have the whole second part to get into the food. you got to tell us how you got to the islands, because the islands, that was no easy feat. No, either. and we went, I, my husband and I went, and we went in the summertime when you can actually take a boat. So we went down the Kola Peninsula because I wanted to experience uh, what this beyond the north wind <laughs> environment was like. That was, a, I think, a 10 and a half hour train ride southeast from Mormonsk. And then we got to a small town. And from there, uh, we took a bus to the port. And at the port, we took a ferry across to the islands. And I think that took about two hours. And the waters can be very rough, but we didn't have a problem. And it's just extraordinary because you see this monastery, 15th century monastery, that's one of the most glorious in Russia, suddenly rising up on these craggy shores that are uh, covered with granite. And there are all these mysterious labyrinths made of stone mm. that go back to a very ancient time that also speak to this idea of the beyond the North Wind utopia and a, uh, a cult of the sun. But if you're in uh, the winter time, you can simply take a kind of puddle jumper plane from Arkhangelsk, which is further to the east. And it, it's a fairly major city, so you can fly there, Directly but there. Mm -hmm. uh, there are only a few flights a week. Well, you you talk about the food that you were um, discovering in, in here, and that so much of the food that the people prepared, and we talked about fermentation, whole grains, that it sort of seemed new again, but they were um, culinary practices that really come from the ancient period and the medieval, well, primarily the medieval mm -hmm. Russian period. Uh, what, what in particular? I mean, a creative fermentation. Um, we've talked, you talked about the pickles, and but there's so much fermentation. Talk about some of the the foods that and the practices. Um, one of the most interesting <coughs> foods I tasted is something called talakno, and it's. Uh, basically, I'm, I became very obsessed with oats while I was yeah, there. I, I mean, that. I love oatmeal for breakfast, but I'd never, and I love oatmeal cookies. <laughs> but I hadn't really gone beyond that. Uh, maybe an occasional loaf of oatmeal bread. But uh, they would take the oats, the whole groats, and soak them in water, preferably in a, a running stream that had fast-running water, in a sack for about 24 hours until they were nice and plump. And then they would put them in the Russian masonry stove, which is a, a big 
uh, if you can think of a wood-burning oven, except it's one that radiates heat out into the room. So it's used not just for cooking, but also for heating. And it has a falling temperature. So unlike a pizza oven where you want to keep it hot, this one has diminishing temperature, and it really determined the nature of Russian cuisine because you put different foods in at different times. That's, and, and that's really interesting because it's... And, and plus something gets, you know, like sort of seared a little bit on the outside if it's open and then gradually... Yeah, gradually so there's rolls. a lot of steaming, yeah. a lot of steaming and something akin to braising. braising. So they steam the oats and then they dry them and then they pound them. They don't grind them. And so you get this really fine, very nutty-tasting oat flour. And they use that to make a, a pudding, for instance, mixed with sour cream. She's and drooling. Some honey. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm drooling. Or uh, one of the best ways I had it was uh, they make blini, which are the Russian pancakes, which we all more or less know. Mm -hmm. But they're not those miniature ones that you have that are dry, served at cocktail parties with a a piece of smoked salmon on them. They're baked in the Russian stove, and so they're a little bit crisp on top, and then this oat flour is sprinkled on them, and it gives it, and a lot of butter is drizzled on. That's very important, too. And they're just extraordinary. Huh. Interesting. And, and you had mentioned that blini was one of the most ancient foods. Yes, and uh, Butter Festival is coming up at the end of this month. It's a week-long celebration before the long Lenten fast begins. Sort of a, a winter solstice. Uh, it is, know, or spring, well, spring, spring equinox. The, the equinox, the vernal equinox, right. So unlike Mardi Gras, which is a Tuesday, a, a day of eating pancakes or Shrove Tuesday, it's an entire week of uh, pancakes in Russia. You know, and it's interesting because I, you had mentioned something in the book about them being a food for the, you know, um, worshiping the sun and yes. for this festival. And I never thought about that. Panca every So many cultures eat pancakes mm -hmm. for, because they're round. They're round. The yeah. Aside from eternal life and yeah. the holy, you know, business that goes on with it. But it's, you know, reflection of the sun. That's, mm -hmm. And I said, ah. You know, a little something I never even stopped to think about. But the blini are made with the buckwheat flour. Um, there are so many different ways to make them. My favorite is half wheat flour and half buckwheat. Uh, the ones that are entirely buckwheat are very buckwheaty, mm -hmm. and I love buckwheat, but I uh, think they taste better when you mix them. Some people just use wheat flour. The ones I just described that had the uh, toasted oat flour on top, those were made with uh, ground... Uh, dried peas. That oh, was the flour that was used. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of everything. Um, and oh, and, and we had been talking about when I said you had to describe how you got to the islands, jumping back and forth because I was so excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> salt. Salt. Um, I mean, it's just salt is important in every mm -hmm. culture. I mean, we wouldn't live without. We didn't have salt. You know, salt from the sea. But they managed to harvest salt, and they have some incredible salts and methods of preparation. Yes, uh, and they've just started reviving that white sea salt industry in a kind of artisanal way. But the monks in this uh, Solovetsky monastery 
It became the second wealthiest monastery in Russia after the one near Moscow because they were selling the salt. It was very lucrative. Well, there you go. But until the 16th century, Russia really didn't have much access to salt. It was extraordinarily expensive, except for this White Sea area. In the 16th century, they developed mines in Siberia, and that became much easier to to get it. But that was mineral salt and not sea salt. Mm -hmm. So they had a special method that they used uh, way back when. And uh, it wasn't like in the south of France, if we think of Fleur de Sel or something, where you evaporate it. They had a method where they were freezing the water and then allowing the salt to come from the frozen water. They had to do it very carefully. And then there they had the salt. I I mean, every culture and every era, salt was a very important commodity. And um, and it's not unusual then that they sold it (laughs) for Mm -hmm. an income. And that, I think it's a wedding gift at times, too, about throughout Eastern Europe. Yes, well, uh, the Russian word for hospitality is bread and salt. Bread and salt, and traditionally, right. a loaf of bread was presented with a, a little dish of salt. Right, right, um, And there are these flavored salts that they make. Those oh. are, the, I, and that's one of the first things that I'm, no, it'll, one of the second things I'm going to make. <laughs> Those were so exciting for me to discover. So one is called black salt or Thursday salt, and it's made traditionally on Maundy Thursday. Mm. It, it's sort of a purifying, cleansing thing to do before the holiest holiday of Easter. But it's considered, because it's blessed and you bring it to the church, and it's considered to have nutritive properties. And I just find that so interesting because it's basically charred bread um, that has some... Uh, a lot of minerals in it. But when we think of all the charcoal foods that are now so trendy in the United States and are considered good for you, again, the Russians weren't thinking about charcoal so much in terms of health, but they knew that this was special. And the I have three different flavored salts in the book, mm-hmm. and the one I like best is made with oatmeal. Oh. Or with oats, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it just, I mean, it really literally turns... Black Black. in the oven, right? Yes, and you have to race it from the oven outside if you have very sensitive smoke detectors, as (laughs) we do in our house, that want to go off at all times of the day and night. Right, right. And then, and then yeah, after that, it's like in a brick. It comes out it's in a brick It's a brick, form. and then yeah. you just uh, pound it and Shut break it up. it up. And if you want it finer, you can put through a sieve. Yeah. Well, there are so many good foods and recipes that we have to talk about as well, aside from the wonderful stories. Um, just to give people a sense of, of what you're talking about in these northern in this northern climate and this northern location so we're going to come back after a short break and talk about those stay tuned this episode is presented by forever cheese a passion for great taste Forever Cheese sources the highest quality and most unique cheeses and other products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia, and imports them to the United States, many under the Mitika brand. If it's Mitika, it's got to be incredible. Learn more at forevercheese.com.
Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Dara Goldstein, author of, well, author of many books, and her most recent is Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. And Dara, we were going to talk about some of the wonderful foods. We've talk- There's so many stories. I bet could go on and on with stories, but um, I do want to give some history of some of the foods, and um, not that they're not contained in the stories, but there are some of the stories will take us off base, I'm sure. I didn't even have to ask you about the tablecloth. You just oh. went right to that one. That <laughs> well, was one of my favorite things yeah. from Russian folklore. It's, it's great. Um, you said you wanted to dispel some of the myths surrounding Russian food, and, and you went after the what you call the heart of the flavors of, of Russian food. And, and what were the myths that you wanted to dispel, in one at least? I think a lot of people have this idea that Russian food is uh, what we would consider bad Soviet food. So sort of tough, unidentifiable meat and potatoes. And maybe not too much more. I remember uh, just last fall, I got in touch with a woman who does uh, book reviews. And her focus tends to be on books having to do with Russia. So I told her the book was coming out and asked her if she would be interested in taking a look at it. And she wrote back and she said, I'm a vegetarian. I don't think so. (laughs) And, And I wrote and said, most of the recipes in the book are vegetarian. It has very little meat in it because meat, as in most places, was extremely expensive and only for special occasions. But also because the Russians, uh, who were devout Russian Orthodox, fasted for nearly 200 days of the year. Huh, I mean, not uh, not eating anything, but they, they didn't eat meat yeah, or dairy. Right, right. So it was, it was a vegetable, mushroom, grain cuisine-based. Yeah. Well, and people tend to think of it, as you said, you know, meat and potatoes, uh, very bland. Mm-hmm. And... and you read through these recipes, and there, there's a, there is some zing in these there's flavors. There's a lot of zing, and it comes from horseradish, which I really love, and also from very strong mustard. Hmm. So it, it's not honey mustard. It's not a, a soft mustard. It, it's really intense. And the brine that's used to, to cure and ferment these foods, I mean, that, that, gives, that gives such an, an interesting... Yeah, flavor. So I'd say if there's one flavor profile for Russian food, it would be sour. But then when I say sour, you know, a lot of people go, ooh, (laughs) because sour isn't necessarily a positive attribute in the English language. But this is like the most beautiful kind of sour. Mm, Interesting. Um, So I think that the, um, the, that I don't. That wouldn't necessarily surprise us. That flavor, but as you say, that might turn some people off if you didn't describe it as you just did. Uh, they're pies and crusts and grains. I mean, again, it, we're going back in culinary history, in history, in historical times. It seems like every culture used a, a crust for a pie. Well, a lot of times, it was a way of. of baking it, and it was its own oven, its coffin, if you will. In fact, mm-hmm. it was called a coffin, right? Yes. But there are so many pies with so many wonderful crusts. And pies has a, a broad range. We're not talking the pie in the generic sense that we think of, you know, in a pie yeah. tin. 
Tell us a I could have written a, a whole book. And I, I, maybe had them, I had the feeling will. you could right. have. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Russian pies. Uh, there are obviously sweet pies, but the ones that really intrigue me are the savory pies. Mm. And uh, wheat did not grow in the far north. Uh, it, I mean, today you can grow it because the climate is more temperate than it was, and there are all kinds of hybrids. But the classic grains were barley and also rye, mm -hmm. because they're a lot hardier. So my favorite crust in this book is made with rye flour, and it's so tender. It's a more modern take because it has sour cream, and I add a little bit of uh, baking soda to it. But um, it has such an earthy flavor to it. And one of the things that distinguishes the northern pies from the ones, say, around the region of Moscow, there's a probably one of the most glorious pies is kulibiak or the kulibiaka, which is a long, elongated fish pie that mm -hmm. has many layers of salmon, often it's sturgeon. I use halibut because that's what I can get. Uh, classically, it has blini in it. I have a simplified recipe. Uh, buckwheat and mushrooms, onions, uh, hard-boiled eggs, dill, <laughs> It goes salt. on and yeah, on and on. It goes on, on yeah. and on, but this one is put together very easily. But um, in the region of Moscow, you tend to have a richer crust that's more like brioche. Sometimes in fancy restaurants, you'll get a puff pastry that's sort of a French overlay to it. Right. But there's a lot more crust in relation to fish. In the north, where fish is the ubiquitous ingredient and readily available, you have lots of fish and then only thin a crust. thin crust. Well, because you have those all those little pancakes, those little blini that separate the yeah. layers inside. But even without the blini, you get... Uh, a they'll make a fish pie, and I didn't put this one in the book even though I wanted to, but they'll put the, uh, the head of the fish in, and you get all that wonderful gelatinous... Um, yeah. Yeah stuff from the cheeks, and uh, if you find the eye, you're very lucky, but that didn't go into the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one, you know, that was co-opted by the French, and, yes. and then one would think, well, if they heard, saw Coulibiac, well, we'd say Coulibiac, on the menu in a French, they would assume it's a French recipe. Yes. But of course... Another myth so, to be dispelled. There you go. There you go. Um, hand, and a lot of hand pies. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, um, we... We know from the um, peroshki, um, polmene, well, those are mm -hmm. more dumplings, but um, a lot of varieties of, of, of different pies and crusts. Yes, and one I riffed on for this book, so it's not a classic recipe, but um, I wanted to make some peroshki, which are the pies that were a little bit different. And so I took fresh cucumbers and cooked them because... Cooked cucumbers are really good, and we don't. We always tend to eat them fresh. Right. And I added dill, and I think I'll have to check the recipe. I might have added a little bit of chopped hard-boiled egg just to bind things, but I may not have. Um, and I put them inside the piroshki dough, and it tastes like you're eating pickles, which, ah. of course, I love. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite recipes in yeah. the book, and I call it pickle pies. Pickle pie. I, I love that one. Right. Um, and you had a... Um, you actually made and took a picture of a scallion pie because there is not a picture of the scallion pie in I the book. Know, I noticed there right? should have been. <laughs> it had that crust with the rye. It's so it gets this and burnished, burnished, beautiful. Brown. Yeah, and yeah. you can do all kinds of wonderful, very frivolous things with 
ornamentation. So you can make flowers or birds or all kinds of flourishes. It's Thanksgiving all over again. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, what are some of the other culinary treasures that that you think highlight these flavors or these or this cooking the the cuisine of, of the north. Another flavor that's really important if we move away from the sour would be going to the other extreme, which is sweet. And one of the things that was a real challenge for me in this book, I have, as you know, from having known me for years and talked to me about the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, <laughs> I have a terrible or wonderful, wonderful. sweet tooth. Wonderful. Um, I, I love sugary things. And in Russia, until the late 19th century, as in most places, sugar was extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. Russia was very famous for its wild hives and its honey, uh, because there are so many forests in the north. Uh, there were hives everywhere, and they used to export so much honey to the west throughout the 19th century. I mean, I'm talking... Um, I can't remember the number, but hundreds of thousands of tons. And so in this book, I tried very hard not to use sugar and to do everything with honey. honey. There are only a couple <coughs> of recipes that use sugar, and that was my challenge. And uh, they used to make their preserves with honey, too, instead of using mm. sugar, and it gives it a very different flavor. So one of my favorite recipes in the book is a honey cake, that has it, it's so easily made. It's just four uh, flat layers that you bake on a, a cookie sheet that um, are a bit like making a firm gingerbread. Mm -hmm. And then you spread the layers with, you have to get high fat sour cream, which you can't find in the grocery store where I live, but you can find it in Russian markets in Brooklyn or you can order it online. And it has uh, about 42% butter fat, so you can whip it. And you whip it instead of using whipped cream, and you get these billows, and you layer these honey uh, layers with it. And then you let it sit for six hours or even overnight, and it is truly divine. Mm, yes. I mean, the, the photograph was <laughs> mouth-watering as well. <laughs> it was. Um, but as far as um, the... Um, you you talked about the cream and the milk. There's a lot of milk and cream and yogurts, and the dairy um, farm. Where is most of the dairy farming done? Uh, it's all over. They have really beautiful. Uh, once the snow melts, uh -huh. they have beautiful meadows, um, and they have salt marshes. And the milk has a gorgeous, rich flavor. And so they do a lot of culturing of the milk because obviously it preserves it. And another, I keep talking, oh, that's my favorite recipe. That's my favorite. <laughs> but there's um, a wonderful old Russian cultured dairy dish called varinets, which is basically milk, whole milk, that you bake very slowly at about 300 degrees for many hours. And you skim... And this they would do as the heat of that masonry stove was started to really on the wane. low. Yeah. Um, you skim the skin off as it forms, and the great uh, French influenced chefs of the 19th century would take this skin and use it for a very extravagant dessert called Guri of Kasha that was made with semolina and um, preserved fruits. But for this dish, you just keep skimming the. Uh, 
skin and stirring it back in. Mm -hmm. And then after it's finished baking and has reduced and is thickened, you stir in a little bit of yogurt or sour cream uh, to give it that sour tang that they love. And then you chill it, and it is so creamy. How... How does it differ? Well, the creaminess. How I would say, how does this differ? It's almost the same method as making a yogurt. Yes, the difference is that because you've baked it for so many hours, it tastes like caramel. Mm-hmm. Like a like a like a tray leche, so like a yeah, but not but like, not no, sweet. dolce di leche. Yeah, yeah, but not sweet. But not sweetened. Yeah, yeah. But the but milk is very sweet naturally. Yes, because it has sweetness. all the natural sugars. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was reading it and I said, well, okay, so it's a little bit like making yogurt, a lot like making yogurt, mm-hmm. except that the culture isn't added till the end. and then uh, not till after you've taken it out. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's, it looks very, very, it looks like a, a comfort food. I would, I it would is. definitely it's very, think it's of it very as comfort rich. food. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there, you talked about the fact that you were telling this one reviewer that no, it's not a lot of meat. And yet, there is meat, certainly fish, yes. fish and meat, and you've got the white fish from from the sea. You've got mm-hmm. um, sea urchins and um, salt grazed lamb. You had yes. me when you said salt, and then, and then salt grazed lamb. And, and if you uh, roast that lamb with kasha, with buckwheat groats, you'll never go back to eating lamb with roasted potatoes again. <laughs> oh, and elk. A lot of elk up north. Yeah, there is, and reindeer. And so you, um, you said you the, the 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 rough weather was always softened by the odors of the braised, s- the smells yes. of braised elk somewhere, right? Yeah. One of the most fun recipes in the book is for something called stroganina, uh, which is basically uh, they use a, a different white fish usually. I do it with salmon, and you take a big chunk of salmon and you freeze it. And then you take a knife and you shave, shave it, it into very thin strips. And so it's like a, a northern Russian version of sashimi. But the difference is that because it's still frozen, you put it on your tongue and you have this wonderful sensation of the ice crystals melting. And if you sprinkle it with some of the flavored salts, oh, it's just... It's uh, a... It's a, a Sashimi snow cone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, when you described that, when I read about that description, I was trying to figure out what would that be like, and so I'll have to try it. Yeah, yeah you need someone uh, with a you know a strong uh-huh. arm to yes. shave it. Yes, I would imagine so. Well, there are just so many. I don't know. Oh, we didn't talk. Well, the fermentation, of, of course, we didn't talk about the drinks. And that is such an important part. And we've talked about it a lot um, in, when we talked about your Georgian cuisine book and the Russian hospitality cuisine book. But in this book as well, it's very, very important, the um, a part of their culture, the, the drinking of the fermented. Mm-hmm. Just give a, we'll give a brief so, overview of that. Um, the basic drink would be kvass, which is basically a very lightly fermented drink made from toasted brown black bread, mm-hmm. rye bread. And it is a way of recycling stale bread, or once you have the process going, you can uh, use some of the mash that is left over for making the previous batch. If anyone wants to taste really good kvass, or also mead, which the Russians were long known for, they should go over to Honey's in Brooklyn, because they make extraordinary mead and and 
fast there. But anyway, um, they ha- they used to flavor with a lot of different fruits, so uh, different berries, black currant or cherry or raspberry was also a favorite. And I have a couple of different recipes for kvass. Uh, where my very favorite. easy to make, very. It very is. Easy. And it's for small batches, too. I mean, it's that for was, small yeah. batches. Yeah. Um, a lot depends on the temperature in the room. Whenever you're fermenting, you know, it's a little bit hard to gauge. And when right. I made it in the summer, it's so different from making it in the winter. But uh, if you add a few raisins to help um, add some sugar to it to speed up the fermentation, that helps. And it's lightly effervescent. My favorite kvass in the book is the raspberry kvass that I make in the summertime. And it's this beautiful pink drink that is so, it's like a tonic. Mm. Yeah, I have made that by accident a couple of times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's great. I said, well, I can use this. <laughs> and another favorite drink in the book is made with sea buckthorn berries. Now, that's a very popular berry. That That's something yes. that we don't, um, you know, we don't see and get. And I have to mail order them. I mean, they don't grow in uh, the Northeast. Um, you can mail order them from... Washington State. But can, you can find them frozen. For the, you can find them frozen, for and that's how I puddings. get them. Yeah, okay. Or you can find bottled uh, buck, uh, sea buckthorn juice, and you can use that instead. And I thicken it with a little bit of potato starch to give it a nice viscousness. Mm-hmm. And you can drink it hot if you're feeling that a cold is coming on, or you can drink it chilled. Hmm. And it's bright yellow, so it, again, yeah. it evokes the sun yeah. too. Absolutely, it, you know, it, you we, you mentioned that everything old is new again, and and if we look at the movements in in modern cuisine that are happening around us in the U.S. here, or, and in a lot of other countries around too, is this no waste um, philosophy, and certainly you know making the salt, you know, flavored salts and the and the fermented drinks out of, you know, the leftover crusts of bread. and th- I mean, there is no waste. There's nothing, you know, to waste. It's so hard to get the food that, you know. Yeah, and one of the best doughs in the book for Pirashki is made with whey. And again, you can mm-hmm. substitute kefir that you go to the store and buy. But if you've made the fresh cheese that the Russians love and you have all this whey, it tenderizes the dough I think I used that one with the pickle pies, and so you get this, yes, you did. this sour yeah. tang just <laughs> through and through. Yeah, um, and and the kvass, which now is is very popular, I think, in a lot of areas. We said like the restaurant Honey um, serves it in other Russian places, but it, you know, cider being very popular and either flat, hard, or you know, uh, effervescent. It's all these flavors. Are resonating with, with today's culture and today's people, generations, and and everything. Indeed, in this book, it, it may be old and ancient methods, but it's it reads new to um, you know to the methods that people are using for their modern cuisine. That's what felt so exciting yeah, to me because yeah. it it felt cutting edge. And yet, many of these dishes had been made for eons. And you were experiencing it in this in this incredible environment. I yeah. mean, that 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 certainly you know had a different take. And reading it as I went into it, and I'm sure, and I hope that everyone will um, um, have the opportunity to to get the book and see the book and go through it. It it did make me taste the food in my mind differently and read 
the recipes differently uh, because I was I was in your setting. You described it for me. I, that's, I was there. And, and this is, these are some of the items that would, I'd be making and finding and, 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 the, and your, your descriptions of the hospitality and sharing the meals is, you know, I won't give it all away, but there are so many wonderful tales. It really is a beautiful book. And to call it a cookbook is, it would be a um, discredit to the hard work that went in for the writing because it is, it's a book of, of culture. Thank you, Linda. And thank you again for coming and sharing all that information. Again, the book is Beyond the North Wind by Dara Goldstein, Russia in Recipes and Lore. And this is published by Ten Speed Press, right? And you can find Dara also on your website, right? At daragoldstein.com. Right. Okay. And you can find... A Taste of the Past at a taste of the past.com. And don't forget that Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported radio station. So please, if you go into heritageradionetwork.org, you'll see a beating heart donate button in the upper right corner. Please give us a look and give us a give us a little a little help there and keep us on the air. And if you are so inclined, and wherever you get your your webcasts, your your podcasts, uh, it helps to give a review. It helps other people tune in and listen to us as well. But thank you for listening for now, and tune in again next time. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.